Hi, it's Fraser here. And before we get into this week's episode of the Spiked Podcast, I just wanted to remind everyone about Spiked Supporters. Spiked Supporters is our thriving community of people who donate to Spiked. Anyone who gives £5 or more a month or £50 or more a year can become a Spiked Supporter and you can get access to a number of exciting perks. Spiked Supporters can comment on articles, get a discount on all items in our shop and bookmark articles as you browse. Plus, you can get free or discounted access to all of our events. It was brilliant to see so many Spike supporters at our recent live podcast with Brendan O'Neill and Julia Hartley Brewer. And we have plenty of exciting events in store for you. Spike supporters is our way of saying thank you to all of you who fund our work. Spiked is completely free and yet you still hand over your hard-earned cash to make sure anyone anywhere can read us. And for that, we're truly grateful. And if you don't give to Spiked yet, now is the perfect time to start. Just go to spiked-online.com forward slash supporters to set up your donation and your Spiked supporters account. That's spiked-online.com forward slash supporters. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the Spiked podcast. I'm Fraser Myers and with me this week, as ever, we have Spiked's editor, Tom Slater. Hello. And Spiked columnist, Ella Whelan. Hi. Coming up on the show, the Conservative Party conference, the Facebook outages, Insulate Britain and Rainbow Crossings. So we had the Conservative Party conference this week. The country almost feels as if it's grinding to a halt. There are shortages everywhere. There are multiple energy crises on different fronts. And yet in the conference hall, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, was very optimistic. Um, so Tom, are you are you feeling leveled up? Are you ready to build back better? <laughs> Maybe not quite yet. Um, but no, it's interesting because the tone didn't necessarily meet the situation that the country finds itself in, definitely. I know a lot of people have made a point of saying that it was almost in poor taste to be so boosterish in mm. a situation with soaring energy prices and the ongoing shortages and all the rest of it. People talking about whether or not they can be able to have all the fixings for Christmas and yet you're just hearing all of this discussion about building back better, building back beaver, all the various different awful puns. Um, but at the same time, I think we can overestimate how important party conference season is. There was mm. that opinion opinion poll um, which suggested that when you showed people extracts from Boris's speech and Starmer's speech, they actually preferred Starmer's speech. But you know, that, not, is, that is not a good sign. That's not, not Boris. That's not a good sign for <laughs> Boris, but then people don't actually watch these speeches. They're largely about party management. And mm. I think what Boris Johnson demonstrated in the conference all this week at least, was the fact that unlike Keir Starmer, what he is able to do, and this might say as much about him as it does about his party, is despite crossing a load of kind of ideological red lines around taxation, around civil liberties and lockdown for some of his MPs, you know, you had Steve Baker at a fringe meeting this week saying, we're all socialists now and getting very upset about the size of the state um, and the tax burden and all the rest of it, that he can still sell this to his party mm. um, and not get the kind of frosty... <laughs> to put it lightly, reception that Keir Starmer did get. And also the fact that even if we just park party conference season, you know, Labour are nowhere to be seen. There was a YouGov yeah. poll out today. They're trailing by like eight points. And you think, how many crises do you need to be able to just even edge towards um, the Tories' numbers at the moment? So we can overestimate how important these party conferences are, I guess. But I guess the fun, it's interesting that even despite everything that's going on at the moment, all the various crises enveloping this government, for the moment at least, it's just not touching them. Yeah. And the answer to that question is a fascinating one. I really haven't the foggiest necessarily at this point. <laughs> Ella? Yeah, it's, you know, you can make the point that 
he, you know, party conferences are often insular, as Tom says, and it's kind of slightly annoying people pointing that out on Twitter all the time because you think, well, we have just come out of what you, you guys have been calling this an unprecedented time for the last 18 months. Like we've already said, the country's in a various series of ongoing crises. You would think that your first public address might be a little bit more in touch with reality. You know, yeah. even mentioning things like not referring to the kind of quite serious situation that's going on, for example, with pigs and pig farmers at the moment of kind of batting it away as he did on um, in the press as oh, laughing at a heck of tomb of pigs or say, oh, kind of briefly mentioning um you know things like HGV drivers and saying oh we're it's all in the process it's all in the process yeah you think you'd be a little bit more serious about that I mean it is people keep saying well we have to wait for the budget or we have to wait for this white paper or that white paper which gives you a sense of that this government is going to do what it has been doing throughout the pandemic which is leave all the crucial detail leave all the important not just policies but the decisions around what to do in relation to the skills shortage what to do in relation to the fact that energy costs have just jumped by a like, you know was it 40 percent or something like the that gas prices for gas prices percent, yeah which which will mean that old people who have small pensions can't afford to heat their homes and we know that they die. So it's really serious. And all of the detail of what they're going to do around that is going to be announced quietly in some kind of white paper and maybe picked up on later on when Boris is not on a public platform, when he doesn't have to be accountable for those decisions. So that's really disappointing, you know, but not surprising. Tom, I mean, what have you made of the way the government has actually tried to spin the crisis into a positive? It's talked about the labour shortages as, you know, part of Brexit and almost as if it's intentional. Mm. We want this as part of a process of going towards a high wage economy. I mean, obviously people want a high wage mm. economy, but you know, does this make any sense at all? I mean, it's the idea that you could just make this intervention and that things would just be fine, you know, not mm. addressing the deeper questions around productivity, which everyone's known about for a long time, failed to tackle for a long time. As you say, everyone wants a high wage economy. The question is, how do you get there? I guess the thing about the framing of it, if we want to talk about it in a slightly superficial fashion, is that it bakes in turbulence, I guess. Yeah. You know, it has to say <laughs> this is all part of the plan. And I think when across the aisle, you have a Labour Party whose main attack line is really the question of, competence you yeah. know you can see how this almost despite all the crises at least for the minute it's the kind of the more optimistic at least it has some semblance of a plan or mm. a vision if we want to even call it that in comparison to just Keir Starmer there waiting for them to mess up and talking about whether or not this or that intervention was properly value for money um it's an interesting one but I think it also just comes down to the fact that maybe putting these crises to one side for a moment I think the fundamental problem that Labour has in relation to the Tories particularly towards um trying to bring some of those working class red wall seats back is that the whole Johnsonian optimism, as superficial as it can often feel, is no doubt a refreshing contrast yeah. in some situations. You know, this whole levelling up agenda. Now, obviously, they spent the whole Tory party conference trying to explain what that actually means. It has for a long time and still is to a large extent a slogan in pursuit of a policy. But it does appeal to that kind of sense of aspiration, yeah. of sort of working class aspiration, whereas the the response from Labour has often just been solely around questions of public services. Um, you know, one of Starmer's big announcements was around um, mental health hubs. Yeah. You know, a welcome addition, I'm sure. But in terms of it, just, just this kind of questions of subsistence mm. and these questions of the welfare state. And even when you hear a lot of the Labour MPs who were booted out last time around, they would say, you know, Johnson says he's going to build all these things, but I tell them about the short start centre and, you know, they go cold. It's not to say they didn't value that, but the idea that your lives and your communities can get better 
the idea of some level of aspiration, which the Tories have quite cleverly been able to make it not as individuated as it might have been in the past, but yeah. also about community and about solidarity, at least in some sense. They have an answer to that in a way that Labour doesn't. And I think the levelling up thing, even though it's still, you know, is incredibly ill-defined and it's an open question as to whether or not any of the various initiatives within it are actually going to work, um, they have a answer to that question, if you like. And it's not clear that Labour Party does at all at this point. We should also talk a bit about how the Tories relate to the culture war. Um, Boris Johnson had the cervix question, the now um, ubiquitous service <laughs> cervix question uh, thrust upon him. And even he seemed a bit wary of answering it straightly. I mean, you know, we're told constantly, aren't we, by The Guardian and the like that um, the Tories are waging this culture war, a culture war against trans people. But Boris couldn't say only women have cervixes. No, he's completely evaded the question. I mean, he did. It's, you know, it. yes, the question is a little bit of a trap because it basically entails an individual picking a side. Either mm. you are on the gender critical feminist side with the vast majority of the country who <laughs> believes that yes only women have services and believes in biological reality or you agree with the sort of minority of trans activist side who say that no sex isn't real and everything's up for grabs and you know words don't matter and if you go with what either side you go with you're going to be labeled some kind of phobe or ism yeah and he doesn't have the guts to come out and say well actually i don't care if you call me a transphobe this is what you know that's an illegitimate accusation. This is what's reality. Let's stop being ridiculous about this. It was, and it seems like a tiny thing, but what it tells people is that on these serious issues of cult, you know, of culture wars that can sometimes feel flippant, um, actually reflect a, a, a deeper cowardice. If you're not even able to say something concrete and clear on such a specific and basic thing like biological reality, why should we trust you on anything? And let's not forget that the Tories are the ones who have used and abused the gender issue um, to try and curry favour with voters to try and get away from this kind of nasty party image. Um, they're the ones that are were initially pushing for changes in relation to self-ID and all of mm. that kind of stuff. So to now pretend like, oh, it's not my fight, uh, you yeah. know, and oh, I don't really care about it. I mean, they're also doing in relation to other areas. I mean, still running through almost every part of what Boris Johnson believes in and the whole sort of momentum behind the conference was the green agenda, yeah. was this idea that we're going to be, you know, eco-warriors. Okay, he might have called Insulate Britain, what, crusties or something and got a laugh. But the whole narrative is that everything has to be green orientated, which if you're, you know, someone living in Blackpool or any of these places that he quoted is going to mean that you don't have all the opportunities he afforded to you. You're, only, you're going to have to fit in line. Your levelling up will have to fit in line with the green agenda. So it's nonsense. And just sticking with the culture walks, we'll come back to the uh, green stuff later a bit, in a bit more detail. But, um, you know, uh, Carrie Johnson was there, the Prime Minister's uh, wife. She also, you know, gave an intervention on LGBT mm -hmm. rights. I mean, what did you make of that, Tom? Well, it was obviously very um, purposeful. You know, it was an attempt to try and draw a bit of a, a line. I mean, at this particular meeting, which I think was organised or sponsored by Stonewall, was the kind of LGBT plus conservatives group. Mm. Um, and it was very much clearly in response to the fact that this was a big um, talking point around conference. The LGB Alliance um, infamously had a stall there, which was a source of a lot of disquiet amongst certain sections of the Tory ranks. I imagine the younger ones in particular. And it was quite clear that this was an attempt to say that um, this government is leaning towards the other side of that particular question, if you like. There's no two ways about it. And this is something that's been reported on before, which is to say that um, the points at which you had certain ministers wanting to launch a quote-unquote 
war on woke. I mean, that's often a bit of an unfair framing of it as far as if it's Liz Truss saying that gender self-ID isn't a good idea for women's spaces. I mean, this isn't some bigoted mm. campaign, but there's always been stories suggesting um, that Carrie Simmons in particular disagreed with this and was trying to steer the ship in a different direction. I mean, the first thing is to say is that I think if anyone unelected has this much sway, it's a problem. Um, and particularly when it's quite clear that her priorities are far out of whack with the um, working class voters who got this government over the line last time. You know, a kind of thoroughly posh West London person. Um, again, having this level of kind of sway over a people's government is a strange tension to have, to put it <laughs> lightly. And I think it's interesting with the Tory party and the trans issue in particular, because they they clearly need to respond to it. It's not just a culture war issue. It mm -hmm. has a material impact on a lot of big questions. Whatever side you come down on those, this is not just a kind of frippery. Yeah. Um, and yet what's interesting, I've seen a few sort of conservative commentators make this point is the fact that the Tories seem to be outsourcing this almost entirely to the radical feminists, really. Mm. It's really interesting. You see, the, they name-check them explicitly, and as we saw this week with Boris Johnson, to the point where the issue actually is pressed more in his direction. He either sidesteps it or just kind of ignores it. Um, and it's interesting on the culture war because of the fact that um, it's quite clear that Boris Johnson wants to signal that he's on the right side, if you like, in these things. He name-checked council culture in his speech. He talked about the attempts to topple Winston Churchill and all the rest of it. But he'll often pick the most safe yeah. areas in which to do that. You know, outside of a very few people, there's no one who seriously thinks that as a nation we should all completely repudiate Winston Churchill. That's not a popular mm. position in the country. <laughs> he waits for a level of overreach that is so extreme that almost mm. no one could disagree with him. But I think given the fact that, as we we're talking about, the culture war is not just an academic discussion. Yeah. It has a real impact on people's lives. And it has a real impact on how we understand one another, society, our history. All of this is really, really important. And how government services are delivered exactly. as well. Exactly. All of these things, you know, are we going to usher in kind of, you know, a, a system which believes that identity and all the rest of it is absolutely crucial, that resources should be allocated on this basis, that laws should be mm. wrapped around these kinds of concerns? It's all really big. So to treat it as if it is just a kind of frippery to have a little side joke about in your speech or your Telegraph column shows that they're not really taking the public seriously on this issue and potentially bending to a press and a broadcast media that are going to call you crazed right-wing culture warriors if you even say, hold on a minute in relation yeah. to these questions. So I don't really understand the wisdom of it. I can understand not wanting to go in too deep to some of these questions, but given how central a lot of this is and how you know, material, this, a lot of these questions are actually, uh, you can't help but conclude that it's just abject cowardice, which is, you know, fueling those kinds of responses that we saw from Johnson this week. Spiked is producing more brilliant content than ever. The best way to keep up with everything we do is by signing up for our daily newsletter. It's called Today on Spiked. Every weekday, you'll get a roundup of all of Spike's content, plus some exclusive commentary from the Spike team, usually myself. So to never miss a thing on Spiked, go to spiked-online.com forward slash newsletters and sign up to Today on Spiked. We should talk a bit about the uh, Facebook outage. Facebook, WhatsApp, Instagram, and all the other companies Facebook owns were down for about six hours this week. Um, over 3 billion users unable to connect to their social media networks. This is quite extraordinary. And it, I think it's reminded a lot of people just how 
big Facebook is, how central it is to our lives and to how we uh, communicate. I mean, Tom, what have you made of that? Well, I think that's that's exactly it. Is it? it just demonstrates what huge power and, and sway this relatively small number of companies have over mm. online communications. So if Facebook servers go down for six hours and it knocks out not just Facebook, but WhatsApp and Instagram, all of these different huge platforms that they've also collected as they've grown in recent years, then you know the whole world loses its mind. Like, yeah. It's really, really striking. Um, and you can't underestimate that kind of power. And I think the kind of, dis- it adds a new dimension, I think, to the discussions that we've been having in relation to big tech censorship. Because when Facebook decides to permanently ban someone, mm. um, that has a very significant impact, particularly if they're in politics, particularly if in, they're in the business of trying to change people's minds, particularly if they're president of the United States. <laughs> um, it has a huge impact. And in, I think this is another thing that just underlines that in terms of how much power is concentrated in a relatively small number of hands and the consequences of not only their own particular decisions and political preferences, but just what happens when they screw up. Mm. It's so huge. And you I, you can only hope that it will just be part of a reckoning with the power that these oligarchs hold and finding some way to rein it in, really, because you know, surely this cannot <laughs> cannot go on in this in this situation. Yeah, I think you're right. I, I, th- I still don't think we quite appreciated the significance of the ban on Trump. Um, that almost seems to have been forgotten about. The fact that, well, now an ex president of the United States uh, cannot communicate with his followers, even though he has many many followers who still who are still interested in what he has to say. You know, he was in office at the time. And even before the election or during the election, when we had the ban on the New York Post's Hunter Biden stories on Mm. the quite dubious grounds that this was misinformation, that this was, you know, hacked material, we now know that the material was real. Again, Mm. so was this a mistake? Was this a political overreach we don't know but it's very scary isn't it these companies having all this power yeah and it has real knock-on effects i mean we've covered many times on this podcast the fact that throughout the pandemic discussion about a virus that no one knew really anything about bar a few very specialist epidemiologists which everyone should have needed to have talked about and there needed to be an open space for you know, intellectual experimentation about how to deal with this. Suddenly you had regulation cracking down on people, not just people who were, you know, latterly skeptical of the vaccine, but also discussion about lockdown, mm. discussions about whether or not to comply with regulations, about how fast the virus was spreading. I mean, we saw on YouTube, Google, throughout social media platforms, censorship of opposing views because of the idea that if you had opposing views, people would allow the virus to run riot and we'd all die. And there was a real mistrust of people. But, you know, just look at what happened in the outage. I mean, the Tory party conference got thrown into total disarray mm. um, on the more kind of populist, slightly banal side. You know, Married at First Sight, this program that I'm a big fan of, was completely ruined because all of the contestants, uh, you know, gained their fame off of Instagram and none of them could post anything on the last episode. But you realise how much we come to, how much public life comes to rely on the tech. Mm. Yeah. And indeed, you know, things like WhatsApp, I had people saying I couldn't get in touch with you and you actually forget that text and call exists because you become so reliant on these platforms. And there is really serious implications. For example, on WhatsApp, which the um, government's online harms bill is talking about you know, intervening into, talking about removing the potential for encrypted messages, looking into people's um, private WhatsApp messages, 
you know, that has become like a phone call. It's the way in which people have private conversations, which the state or big tech should have no influence over and should have no, you know, no eavesdropping into. So this, it, it should make us realize how the public square has changed, how technology has been used for good, but also how it opens up the potential for us to be surveilled mm, mm. in a way which is very problematic for not just free speech, but the workings of normal life. I mean, we are in a bit of a rock and a hard place, aren't we, on, on big tech? Because, you know, obviously, as we've said, we, we all agree it's too powerful. Mm. We all agree it needs to be reined in. But most of the kind of government efforts to rein it in are less concerned with its economic dominance mm -hmm. And more concerned or, or, you know, with the kind of its monopoly power, they're more concerned about clamping down on speech. Raining us, yeah. us in. Not which is the tech. very thing that, that concerns us about big tech in the first place. Yeah. So where do we go from there? No, that's very well put. I mean, the thing that strikes fear in the heart of policymakers is not how much power the tech giants have, it's how much you know, relative power it has to ordinary individuals to yeah. discuss and to get ideas out there, to have discussions in kind of unmoderated un spaces, dark corners of the internet. This is what keeps them up at night. But at the same time, we just need to still recognise that despite that, and despite the fact that pretty much all of the um, suggestions for how you would deal with this problem are going to seem to be worse from a free speech perspective. We have to recognise that this is a problem. This mm -hmm. idea that as big as, that, you know, these platforms, we don't ultimately have to use them, you know, you can go and leave and start your own platform. Not only has that been rubbished by the parlour stuff, of course, um, yeah. but at the same time, it fundamentally misunderstands the nature of these companies. I mean, the thing that makes them such a good product, the thing that makes them so powerful is because so many people are on them. You know, mm. the fact that everyone and their mother is on Facebook and mm. WhatsApp makes it a good product, makes it um, important to be on and makes it a genuine problem if you are banned from any of those services. And, you know, we can all... Uh, with Trump's departure from all of these, you get a really good example of that, which is that he goes away, tries to set up his own little social network. He ended up just building this kind of micro blogging thing on his website that looks a bit like Twitter, <laughs> which is it kind of put me in mind of like a drunk who gets banned from every pub in town. So builds a bar in his living room or something like that. It had that <laughs> kind of shared. tendency to it. You share, we, you know, we share a chuckle, but at the same time, it's quite clear that when you're relegated mm. from that big space, which again relies on that network effect which relies on so many people being in the same space yeah um it has a serious serious impact when you're completely absented from it so yes a lot of the proposals in the us or here it's all towards less freedom of speech online but that shouldn't mean that we just close the case entirely definitely You're listening to The Spikes Podcast. This is your regular reminder that our show is also available on video. You can watch The Spiked Podcast every Friday on YouTube or via The Spiked website. Now, back to The Spiked Podcast. So Insulate Britain are out for the fourth week in a row, clogging up Britain's roads but there's been something of a public fight back. And in particular, there's been this video going viral uh, this week showing motorists dragging um, protesters out of the road um, to stop them from blocking an ambulance. What have you made of the people's fight back, Ella? Well, it's great and it's normal and it's what people should have been doing from the start um, because the it's... And 
it's not just that they were blocking an ambulance. It would have been legitimate to rip them off the road if they were blocking you on the way to work. Mm. You know, there's, they have not just been a nuisance. All protest is a nuisance. It's supposed to be a nuisance as part of why you cause disruption. But the fact that it's been in defiance of public will and in defiance of public opinion, they don't, they've actively said they don't care about winning over pu- public opinion. This is just a means to try and um, push the hand of the government means that ordinary people have every right to then interact with the process and rip them off. I mean, where are the police is the question. If ever there was a use for a police force, it's getting obstacles out of the way of people trying to access (laughs) emergency services. On a serious note, the cowardice of the police in dealing with Insulate Britain has revealed something of their lack of authority. I mean, again, it's this really interesting thing. How do you balance at at the time when government, you know, Home Secretary Priti Patel is clamping down on protests in some of the most liberal ways that we've seen in many years, you then have to make sure that you defend the right to protest in a very full-blooded freedom of speech way. The difficult thing is a group like Insulate Britain comes along and actually completely undermines the nature of what protest is supposed to be about. So I can imagine a a different scenario in which you would uh, block roads and try to get people to block roads with you and build a movement to make something happen. When I think I mentioned once on this podcast, it was floated with lorry drivers around the time of Brexit of doing it. But the whole point is that you bring people with you. So it's so, or you stand on the side of the road and get people to beep you. It's about winning public um, support for your cause. If you've got a kind of nihilistic group like Insulate Britain who are abjectly against public support and don't care about it, you then have a bit of a problem. I think the solution is not in bringing in new laws, taking out injunctions and stuff, but just quietly, informally letting people grab them by the scruff of the <laughs> neck and rip them off. Well, I mean, previously we saw police intervene to stop people from dragging them yeah. out of the road, which is quite extraordinary. I mean, Tom, isn't really the problem that it's not just they don't care about public opinion, but they are campaigning against public's living standards, essentially. Yeah. And I think that's one thing which in those videos of um, those drivers clearing the protesters off of, I think it was Wandsworth Bridge this week, um, the clear kind of class dynamic to this was so obvious. I mean, it has been for some time, mm. as we say. Um, but first of all, in terms of you know the makeup of these protesters, I mean, to say that Insulate Britain or Extinction Rebellion are all kind of well-to-do people from the home counties. It's not just a slur, it's like an empirical fact. Like, yeah, there, is, yeah. you know, there was research last year. A lot of vicars, never really understood that. Um, <laughs> they've been radicalised somewhere along the way. Um, but yeah, like 85% of them, according to research, like have university degrees. Like mm-hmm. it's, This is a very unrepresentative movement. Um, and you also see, you see a kind of clash of people who, again, their lifestyles, maybe because of their time of life in some of their cases, or some of them because of the wealth they've accumulated, the policies that they're calling for do not scare them in a mm. way that it would, or do not inconvenience them. They love not being arrested. Yeah. They also love being arrested, which is the other thing, which you kind of feel like, you know, make the laws as tough as they want. That's exactly what they want, <laughs> yeah, apparently, yeah. which is a strange aspect of this. But is the fact that, in a way, the politics flows from the practice in this mm. situation. They want to make people's lives worse. They want to ban cars. They want to ban flights. They want to, in Roger Hallam's words, create a situation analogous to lockdown where mm. all non-essential consumption is heavily restricted, if not completely banned. And these things might f- sound lovely if your day-to-day life is, you know, cycling around Strood and going to the bakery and, you know, having a chat with your friend and whatever. But if you have to drive for a living, if you have to get the kids to school, if you have to make ends meet, it's quite clear that this stuff is an affront. I mean, it's not just an irritation on their day-to-day lives. This program, such as it is, would impoverish people. And I think these little scuffles are just a demonstration, really, of the fact that what 
this climate war is, is class war by other means. There's just no two ways about it. Absolutely. And they also seem, they give the government a convenient foil because the government, which is pursuing net zero, which, you know, even just a couple of years ago, um, you know, I think the idea came about in, in 2017. If you'd have said net zero to someone 10 years ago, they would have thought you were crazy. It's so extreme. And yet they're able to say, well, we're not them. We're not those crusties. We're not as mad as yeah. that. I mean, there's a really strange dynamic. And also, you know, the government is able to say we want to arrest those people. Yeah. We are in the middle of a period in which there are queues streets long for petrol stations. Mm. We're in the middle of, sev- as you said, several energy crises. And yet the, I think part of the reason why the government isn't being crippled by this and doesn't feel the pressure in party conference or other places is because it's become generally acceptable that actually you probably shouldn't be queuing for petrol. Oh, it's, doesn't this really actually teach you how bad cars are? You know, w- wouldn't it be better if we all had LTNs and you never have to queue up at Shell for a bike? And there's all that kind of narrative, which is infused, as Tom says, within the Britain and Extinction Rebellion narrative, which is that all these, all the problems of normal life about, you know, filling up your car, going to work, doing the things that, that ordinary working class people have to do could be avoided if you somehow went greener. Mm. It's completely out of touch. And it means that the Conservative Party doesn't have to defend the living standards and the normal workings of daily life of working class or working people in general, because that's all to change. You know, you won't have to queue up for petrol if you've got an electric car, or you don't have to do that if you live in an LTN and are forced to get crappy public transport. So there's a, there's, it's an avoidance tactic, but it's also a sign of the changing priorities of government that actually these things don't don't really worry them so much because in a few years 10 or 15 we'll all be net zero yeah i mean the energy crisis is really extraordinary i mean it it points to this huge failure of successes successive governments to secure energy for us Mm. to you know to guarantee a kind of uh, autonomy from the kind of world the variance of the world global market for energy and things like that and yet they're going to take it further. They want to make uh, they want to make our energy even less reliable and less secure. It's mm. it's a very strange situation. Well, you would just hope that the current crisis would wake a few people up because the conditions were such that they could get away with a level of kind of expensive virtue signaling up mm. until this point. You know, you just apply renewables with subsidy. You introduce these kinds of punishing, you know, and costly, but not the sort of thing that would hit people that starkly in the pocket. Certainly not to the level that we're seeing now. But you would hope that this would cause some sort of reassessment because when you see that when you have a genuine sort of energy crisis on your hands and there's talk about just the knock-on effect that has for prices of basically everything when you're talking about various different industries just having to down tools because they can't Mm. afford to keep going the simple point but for some reason it needs to be repeated that you need cheap and reliable energy in order to motor a prosperous society has reasserted itself if nothing else you you hope that will um that will change things but as i say when is the question i guess so some people may have noticed that our public spaces are becoming a lot more woke. Um, rainbow, rainbow crossings are appearing in many towns. We now sometimes see sort of traffic lights doled up with um, symbols of sexual minorities. And in Hanau, in Germany, they've started giving out parking spaces, especially for LGBT people and for, for migrants. Um, what do we make of this kind of? I want to see what that blue badge. Looks like. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I'm not sure I'm comfortable people showing papers to show mm. their migration status. But anyway, wh- what do we make of this kind of um, rainbowification, this prideification of public space? Well, there's two sides to it. One side is that 
it has been proven to pro- cause practical problems for people. Yeah. Um, so as was covered on Spike this week, there is an issue with disabled people um, complaining about the fact that their guide dogs, you know, blind people with guide dogs cannot understand a rainbow crossing, for example, and that the sort of uh, haphazard way in which towns might display their quote credentials via paintings on the road is and going away from a kind of standardized zebra crossing poses problems for people who need standardized things because they're not able to differentiate um like those of us who are able-bodied or whatever the phrase is there's the practical problems of that i mean there's also the case that in church street in stoke newton near where i live they've got rainbow crossings all over the street that actually signify LTNs. Mm. But everyone drives up to and thinks, oh, a lovely rainbow crossing, yeah. drives through and gets a fine. So <laughs> there's there's several practical problems to these. But then there's also the fact that the suggest this is not just a nice painting on the road. It's not just a nice picture of a lady with half a skirt, half a trouser leg on the traffic light. What it is, is that the insinuation that if we didn't have these, mm. then we'd all be going around dropping out homophobic slurs and, uh, you know, wa- walking into disabled people and not giving migrants our parking space, that we're an evil population that needs these kind of nudges and hints from authorities to keep us in line ideologically it's really quite sinister or the alternative is that you know if you are from a sexual minority or you're a migrant you're so oppressed that you need this reminder that yeah we're with you yeah you've got this it's Mm. it's okay and um people might have seen in canada there was an incident where i mean it's a road marking so there were skid marks on one of these rainbow um zebra crossings and the police treated the incident as a hate crime as an attack. Well, they were doing like donuts on it just to make a point. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. I don't know whether they were doing that or just, you know, <laughs> slam the brakes. That's what they are doing. Yeah, yeah, trying to, you know, trying to not <laughs> run someone over. The, the politics of zebra crossings, I mean, it just so, it affects <laughs> everything, doesn't it? I mean, I guess in terms of how public space has to be reshaped, I mean, it's interesting and Joe Bartosz mentions this in a, piece about how some of the traffic signals around Trafalgar Square, I think it is, where they were just brought in for pride and you can never get rid of them, you know, because of the fact that to do so would be to act as if you were taking something away or making some sort of statement. And it's such a strange thing to do in public space, I think, to constantly have this in quote marks, because I don't think it actually is this, this sort of celebration of difference. Mm. Because on the one hand, you know, who's against celebrating the fact that people come from different walks of life and we can all be one harmonious society, all the rest of it, that's fine. But not only has it been kind of fetishized in a quite tokenistic and I'm sure quite patronizing fashion, you know, people just trying to go about their business and they've constantly got everything from a traffic crossing to some sort of sign on the, you know, on the side of a tube talking about how we're all allies with you. And isn't that yeah. wonderful? Like just want to go about their days, I'm sure. Um, but also is the fact that again, celebrating difference becomes the point, you know, you should, as a society, particularly a multiracial society, a tolerant society of people of all different sexual inclinations and all the rest of it. You know, you should be relaxed about difference. Do you want to constantly point it out though? Mm. Like that's the subtle but important difference that we see. And the the thing about, I don't know why I'm laughing, but the, the fact about, you know, guide dogs having a problem with this. I mean, it's fascinating that you can be so woke that you're ableist, which yeah. is <laughs> one thing that's going on here. Um, but also, and Joe makes this point in the piece, which I don't have a good answer to, is how all of the kind of the oppression Olympics crowd they haven't really got much pl- space for disabled people yeah. at all. Like, you know, the the fact that if you're in a wheelchair or if you have certain other 
um, disabilities that even just operating in public space is very difficult. There's only like 50 stops on TFL, which are actually wheelchair mm. accessible. This doesn't feature in the grand theory yeah. at all, really. It's not talked about that much. They don't have a flag, as, as Joe says. Because it's um, hard work. It yeah. means investing in things. It means actually changing public space for the better rather uh, than a lick of paint. There's that. And there's also the fact that I guess what's interesting is that you do see this around the edges of the identitarian thing where people actually identify into disability yes. as well. And that one thing I think at least makes it less of a big issue is that the great thing about identity politics for a lot of quite privileged people in society is by dint of a particular characteristic, they can claim this victim status. It's not an easy thing to claim to be disabled. Some of them still do it, <laughs> which is very odd and mm. is one of the under-commented upon and quite strange aspects of the whole kind of social justice ideology. But I guess because of the fact that it's an actual real thing in society rather than just something which is in your head and your feelings, um, it seems to be, again, just not talked about. Certainly not um, a sexy issue for these people, despite the fact it's a very clear problem for people who need to go about society and they can't because of their you know particular restrictions. Thank you for listening to the Spike podcast. We're back every Friday and you can now watch us on video too. Check us out on YouTube or go via the Spiked website, which is spiked-online.com. See you next time.